If you'd have your Bibles open to Mark chapter 4. Friday night I was at the New Hanover Hoggard basketball game. Such a big game. It's the last one of the season, number one against number two. They moved it to Trask Coliseum. Can you imagine that? And Trask was nearly full. I'd say there were 5,000 people there. And uh, this huge game and all this excitement. And then it kind of went up a notch when Roy Williams walked in from Carolina. Just sat near the front row and was looking at me and some other people on the court. <laughs> well, you should have seen what happened. I mean, as soon as he came in, you just, start, you just had this sense around the crowd. People were like going... Gosh, that, that looks like Roy Williams. That's Roy Williams. And then just, you know, the same thing happened to me when I walked in. People just began to crush in around. And so much so that they had to have some security and, and personnel, which I understood. I told them, Roy, that's, I understand how that works out. And so uh, it was just amazing how that dynamic happened. All this crowd there for the game, all this crowd there to see Roy Williams And really, Mark points this out about Jesus. He's constantly pointing out that there are these growing crowds pressing in to take a look at who Jesus is. And I hope that we're part of that. We're we're pressing in to see who is this person. He comes home. He's called his 12 disciples and he comes back to Capernaum. And there's such a crowd in the house, they can't even eat. And then we find here in Mark chapter 4, he's walking along the Sea of Galilee, and there's such a crowd. He, he's trying to teach this crowd. It's, they're pressing in. He has to get in a little small boat and push away from shore just to create some space and volume so that everyone could hear. And so I want us to notice here in verse 3, the very first thing he says, he gives emphasis to this because he, he says it in the beginning in verse 3 and at the end of the parable in verse 9. He says nearly the same thing. Verse 3, listen, hear. That's the very first thing he says. In the Greek, it's hear and behold. It's actually two words. In your text, it probably has some kind of exclamation point. Listen, pay attention. I mean, this is the first thing. He's going to say something here and he doesn't want anybody to miss it. And even at the very end of the passage, notice what he says. He who has ears, let him hear. So listen in the beginning and after he said it, listen. Did you hear it? Were you paying attention? And the reason he's saying this is because there's all kinds of voices out there vying for our attention. It's, it's like it's, they're like the fans behind the basketball goal when you're shooting the free throw. You're focused in on one goal, but this mob, this waving crowd, they're doing everything they can to get you to not pay attention to the goal. And all of these voices out there are waving their hands and they're saying, listen to me, I'm the right way, I've got the truth. And we've talked about some of those in the last couple of weeks. The scribes are saying, listen to me. See, Jesus isn't who he said he was. He's actually from Satan. He's a liar. And as soon as they exit, the family comes in. No, 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 listen to us. We, we know Jesus. And he's out of his mind. He's a lunatic. 
We know that Satan is constantly using that method to distract us. He slithers up alongside of us and he whispers in our ears, Did God, I mean, did God really say that? I mean, did you hear that right? Maybe you were off a little bit. Listen to me. I've got the right information. The pressures in our lives, prosperity, they bear down and they wave their hands saying, life's over here. Listen to me. And Jesus, against this chaos, all these competing voices, Jesus, little Jewish man pushed out in a boat, he says, listen to me. I've got the truth. If you have ears, let them hear. Don't let your head be turned away. Now, most of the people here, if not everybody in the text, is Jewish. They're standing around or sitting around this Jewish rabbi, and the first thing he says is, Hear! And they would remember probably this from Deuteronomy 6.4. It's called the Shema, which is a Hebrew word for hear. Remember what it says? Hear, Moses is telling the people. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord your God is one. And that got repeated over and over and over again in Jewish circles. And they didn't want anybody to forget it. So the first thing, the first word was, hear, pay attention. The Lord your God, He is one. There is one voice. There is one word. And as you're entering into this culture full of waving people saying, listen to me, full of prosperity, full of pressures, full of pluralism, he's saying, don't forget. Tell your children. Write it down everywhere you go. There's only one voice. There's only one word that leads to life. You remember seeing the Narnia trailer? Did you see this trailer before the movie came out? You went on your website and you saw it. It was a great little spot. Remember what was happening is uh, Lucy's running through the house. They're doing the hide and go seek. And she kind of runs through the house and the screen comes on and says, in, there, in this house, there are many rooms. She runs forward. She comes into a, a room. There are many doors. She pulls the sheet off of the wardrobe and she opens the door and then the screen comes on. But only one door leads to another world. You see, there's only one door that leads to another world. That's what Moses is trying to tell the people of Israel. Don't forget, there's only one God. You're going to get in there and you're going to get your head turned. You're going to get all this kind of confusion. But the Lord your God, the Lord, He is one. And Jesus is saying, the, listen, pay attention. There's all kinds of words out there. There's all kinds of distractions out there. Look at me. Listen to me. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And so we're sitting here this morning like the disciples, like the crowd at Capernaum. We're trying to lean forward. And we're going to lean forward 
and listen and hear what is the mystery of the kingdom of God. Jesus says to his followers, you have been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. Are you leaning forward? Are you distracted thinking about something else? There's nothing else more important. Behold, listen. If you have ears, hear. And so we want to look at two things. What is the secret? We see in verse 11. And then what are Jesus' warnings in this parable not to miss it? So let's look at verse 10. When he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret, or some text might say the mystery of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. The only thing that we can say about the mystery or the secret from this text is given to those who come seeking Christ. You notice that that somehow Jesus gets alone. So he's with this big crowd. And I guess the teaching sort of gets dispersed or the crowd gets dispersed after the teaching. And Jesus is alone. And the twelve and some people with them come and they find Jesus and they begin to ask Can you help us with this? See, some people heard it and said, well, okay, maybe next time. That wasn't that probably wasn't his best sermon. I'll come back next week. You know, that kind of idea. But these few, they they've come along. They're seeking, they're knocking, they're asking. And Jesus is giving them the secret of the kingdom of God. Turn to Colossians 125. And Paul talks about the mystery or the secret a little bit more clear terms. Colossians 1.25. Paul is a minister or a steward. He's talking about verse 25. I have, I have become a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me. See that same idea? Something has been given to me and now I'm giving it to you. I'm, I'm, I'm giving what? I'm making the word of God fully known. The mystery or the secret. See, something's been hidden for ages and generations. And Paul is going to make it known. See, all of the Old Testament is like a shadow. And the cross cast a shadow backwards. And the people in the Old Testament are peering into the future. It even says the angels in 1 Peter, the angels are longing to look in to this great mystery that Paul is unpacking for us. The mystery that's hidden. See, it's not something new. It's something that's being revealed, but is now revealed to his saints. To them... God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is the mystery, which is Christ in you. The secret or the mystery is that the word has become flesh and doesn't just dwell among us. It actually dwells in us 
Jesus Christ is the mystery. And He has come to live in us. It's no more seeking on our part. No more trying to get to God. He's coming all the way to us. And not just around us. He's actually coming to live in us. And trying to describe it is a great mystery. And so Jesus is saying, pay attention. Listen. There's only one voice. There's only one way. And that is Jesus Christ coming to live inside of you. So Jesus Christ is the central part. There's other ways to describe this mystery, the actual spreading of the gospel into the Gentile culture. But really the core is Jesus Christ. This past week I was up in Winston-Salem and John Piper, some of you all know this name, was uh, preaching in an evangelism conference. And he really tried to get at the same nugget that Christ is at the center, the center, let me say that the right way, Christ is at the center of all that happens. And he does it in this passage. So let's just follow along. Listen, 2 Corinthians 4.4, this was the passage that he was preaching on. The God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbeliever. All right, so there's a blindness. There's people who see it, but they can't perceive it. There's something they hear, but they can't understand. They cannot see, and this is what they can't see, the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's a, that's a massive little statement. But we see here that there is perceiving, there is hearing, but there's not understanding because Satan, the God of this age, has actually blinded the mind. We can't see. And so Piper asked these sort of series of questions that he typically does. And here was one question he asked. What does Satan wish to blind people from seeing? Answer, the light of the gospel, which is the glory of Christ. And then Piper says, well, what's the gospel? You're, you're being blinded from seeing the gospel. Well, what is the gospel? He says, well, typically you think of it as the good news. Well, what makes, then he keeps going, his argument, what makes the good news good? This is what you're going to be blinded from. And he says this, this is what people would say. The good news is that we get to go to heaven and avoid hell. That's the gospel. Or, the good news is that we are forgiven. We're justified. That's the gospel. Or, we are avoiding the wrath of God. It's been satisfied by Jesus Christ. And we don't have to endure the wrath of God. Boy, that's good news. That's the gospel. Or some of us think the good news is that we get to go to heaven. We're reunited with our families. There's no more tears, no more anxiety. That sounds awfully good. And Piper wants to say, yeah, those things are good. I don't want to take those away. But that's not the gospel. That's not what Satan's trying to blind you from. He's trying to blind you from Jesus Christ. So the gospel is Jesus Christ. The mystery is Jesus Christ. Everything is revolving around the person and the work of Christ. Now, here was his little test to see if you really understand the mystery of the gospel. You really understand the good news of the gospel being Jesus Christ. Here's your test. This is coming from Piper again. He says this. 
Now, if you were to go to heaven and you would get all of your needs met, anything that you thought, gosh, I just want that, it would be met in abundance. You'd be reunited with any friends or family. You'd have some perfect health. You'd have a a great golf game. You'd have the perfect wave all the time. You have no, no laundry, no dishes, it, no anxiety, all peace and bliss. You could have all of that, but you wouldn't have Jesus Christ. Would that be okay with you? You see, and if you answer, well, that's a lot of good stuff. I mean, I kind of thought that's what made heaven heaven, all that stuff that you just mentioned. I mean, I want that stuff. If you answer in that way, see, you don't understand the gospel yet. You've seen, but you haven't perceived. You've heard, but you haven't understand. The center, the one thing that makes heaven heaven is Jesus Christ. And all of those other things fall out from that. He's the only thing that has value, and His presence in heaven gives value to everything else that's there. So He's at the focus. The mystery of the kingdom of God is Christ living in you right now. Right now. Well, that's a massive truth. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And in some ways, you'd think, especially... As a believer, you think, well, everybody would want this. I mean, this is something anybody would be interested in. But apparently not. And even if you are kind of interested, it's apparently relatively easy to get distracted from this truth. Because Christ has this parable for the followers. And so I want to look at some of the warnings. See, don't allow Satan to take away, to distract Don't allow him to be the fan in any way to say, hey, I had my eyes on the goal, but now I've gotten distracted in some way. And he offers three things that we want to think about here. First, in the parable, we see that Satan can harden your heart. The sower goes along and in Palestine, they have these little hard paths that go in and out and around the field. And the sower is just liberally throwing out the seed everywhere that he goes. He doesn't know if there's other weeds that are being sown there that are eventually going to choke out. He doesn't know if right underneath the surface is a rock that the seed isn't going to. He's not worried about whether the seed happens to be falling on the hard path. He's just liberally sowing the word. And some of it falls on this very hard path. And as soon as the, the sower sort of walks by, these birds come down expectedly and pick off the seed And it doesn't produce any fruit. And this picture came to mind. Just trying to think about that. And I don't know if you saw the movie The Passion. Very graphic scene towards the end where Christ is hanging on the cross and there's the two thieves, one on each side. And one of them sees and perceives One of them hears and understands, but the other one does not. And so the one thief is saying he's hurling insults at Christ. Now imagine this. 
He's hanging on a cross. He can't get a lot of breath in. That's what happens when you're crucified. You suffocate. So when he has a chance to get a breath, he looks at Christ hanging on the cross. He looks at the mystery revealed. He looks at the definition of beauty and mercy and love. And he's staring right at it. And in his breath he goes, are you the Christ? Well then save yourself and save me as well. You see, it's a hard path. He's looking right at Christ and he doesn't see it. He doesn't see that he's the door into a whole new world. He's totally focused in on himself. He just wants this person to get him down from the cross. So that he can then begin to live his life the way he wants to live his life. And I don't know if it's purposefully done or it's just the way I'm interpreting it. But you remember what happened? A big black raven or crow came and sat on the beam. Remember what the bird did? Pecked out the eyes of the thief on the cross. Like it was, you're looking at it, the scene's right here and you can't get it. You can't see it. And Satan can come along and you can be so self-centered, so focused on, in on yourselves, that he just swoops down and he picks it up and he's off. You remember this other picture? This was another picture I had of the same idea, the last battle. This book in the last book of the Chronicles of Narnia. And they're all coming through one door. Remember this? The stable door. They're coming in and the dwarfs are, have come into the stable and they're all sitting around the stable and they think they're still in the smelly ta- stable. But all the other people, they realize they're, they're really at the beginning of heaven. And Lucy and the other people are saying, why can't they see? They're, they're inside. The, why can't they? Why don't they have their eyes open to the reality? And Aslan comes over and spreads out a huge banquet for them. And they think it's food that's come from a mule's trough. And they end up fighting each other and blooding each other's nose. And then at the very end of this little scene, see, the dwarves no longer want to be taken in by anybody else. And they have this little phrase. Remember what they say? Dwarves are for dwarves. Do you hear how hard that is? Really, I'm just for myself. And I don't care what gets spread out for me. I'm just taking it for myself. That's the hard path. Some of us might be on that hard path. And I'm begging you, I'm imploring you, listen. Pay attention. Jesus Christ is the way. The second thing that we see... Is that Satan, if he can't just swoop down and grab the seed, I think he's involved in these other two things. One, persecution, which we see with the rocky soil. And two, prosperity, which we see with the thorny soil. Notice in verse 17, he's explaining the parable to the disciples and those who've come along. Verse 16, there are those sown on rocky soil, the ones who, when they heard the word, 
They immediately received it with joy, and they have no root in themselves. They endured for a little while, and then when tribulation could be said pressure or persecution arises, on what account? This isn't just worldly pressure. This is a different kind of, or a very specific kind of pressure. The pressure from believing in the Word. I'm calling myself a Christian, and because of that, certain pressure, certain persecution, certain trials come my way, and if I don't have a root in something, then I wither away. And I thought about these two biblical characters, pretty sobering. Demas. Most of you are probably unfamiliar with Demas. You can find him in a couple of different passages. And you can just note this one, 2 Timothy 4, 9 and 10. This is the very end of Paul's letter. It's the last letter he writes. He's in a Roman prison. He's just about ready to be beheaded, probably. And he's writing to Timothy and he says, Do your best to come to me quickly for Demas, because he loved this world has deserted me. Now, it's possible that Demas was just enticed by worldly pleasures. I don't think so. I think if that were the case, he probably wouldn't have stayed with Paul this long. I think the pressure was, I'm standing next to a guy who's just about ready to have his head cut off. And probably if I stand here very long, my head's going to be cut off. And do you see what happens? He loves this life. Not just the world. He loves this life more than the life to come. He doesn't have his eyes set on things, heavenly things. He has his eyes set on earthly things. And when he sees that evaporating, he runs. And we don't hear from Demas. We don't know what happens to him. We do know what happens to Peter. Mark chapter 14 Peter has followed after Jesus after the arrest. He's in some kind of courtyard. Peter the Rock is standing in the courtyard and a little slave girl comes up and says, Now, I think the guy over there that's going to get crucified, weren't you with him? This little slave girl. And what happens to Peter? Oh, (laughs) I'm not with him. You see what happened to Peter? I love this life more than the life to come. And I look at Demas and I look at Peter and I have to ask myself, well, where would I be? I mean, I want to say I hope I would be in the place to say I'm focused on the world to come. But when I look at these two men, it's sobering to ask, where would you be? Would you be willing to lay your life down for the word of God? And so Satan realizes that's a great temptation, so he uses persecution. I would say this just as um, an encouragement, perhaps. I think some of the answer to finding yourself deeply rooted comes from uh, Ephesians 4, um, really 11 and following. Remember, Paul is trying to encourage the church, and we talked about this when we went through Ephesians. He's saying, I I gave some to be pastors and some to be teachers, and they're supposed to prepare 
God's people for works of service? Which might mean laying your life down. So one way you can be deeply rooted. He says this. So that you'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching. How can you not just be tossed around? Remember, we had this idea of ballast. You have these heavy stones. You have this great biblical teaching that's pouring into your life and you're digging your roots down. So if you're looking for a church, if you're looking for a place to call home, please, this is not a plea to be a Christ community church. It's a plea to be at a place that's digging your roots down deep. And the second thing that we need in order to have this root, I think he's saying, so that we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ From him, the whole body, listen, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, growing together. We've got to have good theology. We've got to have the word of God drilling down our lives. But we've got to have heavy, and I say this nicely, people. Right? We've got to have these heavy people in our lives. That so, you know what happens when you have an erosion problem? When soil begins to erode, you plant trees that have deep roots. And you know why? Because all of that root structure holds together all of the land around it. And see, there may be a time that you feel like you're on shifting sand and you need some root, some tree that's big enough to hold you in. And so we've got to have people in our lives so that when you feel like you're tipping over, this person says, hey, don't worry, I got your ground too. If you don't have that, I say you're wide open to the work of Satan here. If you think you're just out there on your own, even if you've really got good teaching, you're really opening yourself up to the work of Satan. Third thing I mentioned already is Satan will distract you. He'll come down and he'll swoop it up before it ever has a chance to take root. You have a hard heart towards the gospel. Could be that you, oh, but gosh, this all sounds great, but you don't have any root because of persecution. Or probably the thing that hurts many of us the most is that Satan distracts us through prosperity. Isn't that interesting? That prosperity actually works against hearing and understanding the truth of the gospel. Look at what he says here. He uses these phrases. There are those who hear the word. There are others, the ones sown among thorns, great image, something that sticks into you. And if you tried to pull it out, rips out. There are those who hear the word. But the cares of the world, meaning the distractions of the world, not anything particular, I'm just distracted by the world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things. They enter in and they choke the word. They drown it. The desires for other things we talked about a few weeks ago, it's, it's a good desire that's gone bad. It's a harmful, remember this term? It's a harmful 
over longing. I have a longing for a good thing that now has become the center of my life. And because my girlfriend or my job or my, my success or my body or my life has become the center of my life, those things aren't evil, but now they're a harmful overlonging. I'll do anything to protect those things. And the deceitfulness of riches. We talked about this last fall when we went through Matthew chapter 6. You remember that you're supposed to store up treasures for yourself in heaven. You're not supposed to be focused in on earthly things. You're supposed to be focused in on heavenly things. And then Christ is going to try to give us a little uh, example, uh, a picture of what this would look like. And he uses the eye. If you have a good eye, meaning a single eye, then your whole body is good. But if you have a bad eye, listen, if you have a bad eye, meaning you have more than one thing in your vision, you're trying to focus in on God and all these other things have added to it, then your whole body is full of darkness. This is a hard saying. I think what he's driving at is that you might be able to say, Paul, I'm doing great in my quiet times. I'm doing great in my life with my wife. I feel like I'm doing fine in terms of evangelism. Prayer life, not bad. Tithing, ah, <laughs> that's just kind of a weak spot. Apparently, that weak spot blinds you from everything else. And your evaluation of your spiritual life is worthless. You can't be good in these other areas unless you're good in this one area. Because it's a thorn that grabs hold of your soul. You can't get away from it. It affects absolutely every area. You couldn't possibly be praying well when you're captured by the wealth of the world. Because your prayers would end up being self-centered back on yourself in some way. Gosh, that's hard. I was reading online about this porcelain berry vine. I don't know if you've heard of it. I had not heard of it. It's kind of like kudzu, apparently. And they were having these little descriptions about the vine, whether you'd want to plant it, how you would plant it, that kind of stuff. And this is, I thought this was an evaluation that somebody sent in about the porcelain Berry vine. Although this is a fairly attractive vine that looks like a grapevine. Well, okay, that sounds good. It's terribly invasive. It can add and will choke out fully grown trees. I've seen several trees killed by the vine. It takes over a whole wood. It covers buildings. It can tear down a fence. And listen to this last evaluation point. And my local plant nursery sells it as an ornamental vine. Oh, it's beautiful. It's just a little vine. I've just got this one little area. And it can choke you. It can kill you. The deceitfulness of wealth. Satan uses to take the seed. And so we look at these 
And Jesus is still saying the same thing that he was before. Are you listening? Have you been listening? Are you paying attention? I mean, if you look at Jesus on the cross, what do you see? Do you see the definition of beauty? Do you see the, 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 the unveiling of all mysteries? Do you see it as a, a doorway home? Or do you come and you say, Yeah, what's for lunch? Are you distracted? Has, has wealth, an abundance or a lack of it, become a distraction? Pressures. Pressures from your family, pressures from your neighbor, pressures from the workplace. Oh, you're a Christian. Do you have people in your life that can hold your ground too? That's a lot to consider. Let's pray. Lord, there's so many ways to talk about this parable. I could have spent the whole time talking about just hearing receiving and bearing fruit. But I'm afraid we're so easily distracted, so quick to want to run to that and not really see ourselves maybe accurately. We may have been, all our lives, a person that's seen but not perceiving, hearing but not understanding. And we're in some great danger. So I pray for these people, Lord. Holy Spirit, come. Help them hear. Help them see in only the way that you can do it. We come and offer what you've given to us. We're trapped, many of us, by the deceitfulness of wealth. And so we, we put in the worship service, the, the worship of the offering, that as we think, as the basket passes and we don't put anything in, as the basket passes and we put in a, a fraction of a percent, we, I pray, Lord, that you would grab a hold of the lives of these people and help them see, help them hear, help them live in abandonment to you. In every aspect of our lives, open our ears, open our eyes that we may see. In Christ's name, amen.